this particular passage, we can, I just felt really uncomfortable breaking it up. Now, normally sermons, what happens in a, in a church service is at the end of the message, we oftentimes give an invitation where, you know, you can spend some time repenting or you can come to Christ or, you know, reflect on the message a little bit. So we're not going to do that at the end, so I'm going to just do it at the beginning. Um, and I want you to contemplate at the very beginning. And as we go through um, this message, I want you to begin thinking, are you a follower of Christ? And if you are a follower of Christ, you should walk out of these doors today skipping, rejoicing, and shouting hallelujah, or in just complete awe and silence. And if you are not a follower of Christ today, I pray that you will be convicted. And Simone and I will be here, and some anybody really in this church will be here to answer any questions you would have about how it is that I can join in that celebration. And if you're not certain... This is a good day for you as well. If you're not certain, am I, am I a believer? We would love to be able to spend some time sitting down and talking with you about what it means to follow Christ. Because as we come to this amazing passage in the book of Revelation, we, uh, we are privileged, actually. We are privileged to see the things that John is seeing. Let me give you a little bit of a review of where we have been, just to get everybody up to date, and I'll give you a little bit of preview of where we're going, and then we'll read our text and actually delve into it just a little bit. Basically, beginning in chapter 4, a whole new section began, and Yahweh, God Almighty, was seen in glorious splendor. Jesus was seen as the victorious one in resurrection, that He is worthy, the, the Lamb who is worthy to bring about God's redemptive purposes, to bring about God's plan of redemption to fruition. We see this illustrated by um, the Lamb, Jesus, taking a scroll that had seven seals, on it, and he begins to break the seals. And what we saw last week, we saw the first four seals broken or opened, um, and we looked into this scroll uh, that was handed to Jesus. So that's just kind of where we've been. If you want further um, detail, there are still sermon notes on the back, and of course, uh, sermon.net/corp. You can get that. Uh, you can get that. Sermon, or listen to that sermon, or download that sermon, or you can even comment on it. So that's really where we've been. Let me give you just a very, very brief overview of where we're going to be going. And I want to, uh, just real general and real broad, the structure of Revelation 6 through 8 1 is very similar. That is, the breaking of the seals is very similar to the other three judgment cycles that we're going to see in the book of Revelation. There is a, the judgment cycle of trumpets and the judgment cycle of bowls. And we're going to see them are, are very, very similar to one another. And they are structured. We're going to see six, six judgments, basically. Then there will be an interlude, or a, just kind of a, well, an interlude. I got no better word, just interlude. And then there will be a final judgment. And that's something that we'll see today. We'll see. We'll see judgment five, judgment six, then an interlude, and then something awesome. That's where we've been. Or that's where we've been. That's where we're going. Now, why do we need Gen why do we need Revelation chapter um, six, nine through eight one? 
Would any of you affirm with me that sometimes life is hard? And you and I got it really easy. I mean, we are blessed beyond all blessings to live where we live and to have the things that we have. But even still, life can be hard. It is difficult to maintain a Christian witness in the light of a very pagan and godless culture and becoming more so. The period between the Advents, literally the period between Jesus' ascension um, or Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming is a challenge to all believers. And we, of course, saw that in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We saw churches who were um, struggling to serve God in the midst of a very, very godless culture. Some of them were unable to buy or sell because of their faith in Christ. They were unable to get jobs. They were persecuted from without and they were persecuted from within. It was a very challenging time. And in those churches, Christ would come and describe himself and then give them a word of hope, a word of encouragement, a word of, come on, keep going. It is worth the fight. It is worth the struggle. Everything here on earth pales in comparison to what you have in me and what you will have when you continue to serve me. Even if it costs you your life, even your life is not worth the value of the kingdom of heaven which I am giving to you. And so, as we come and we look at the period between the advents, we see that there are all sorts of challenges, all sorts of trials. There is deception, there is war, there is turmoil, there is economic trial. All of these things are way upon those who seek to live godly. And so one might begin to question, maybe you've questioned, Is there any hope if I continue to follow the Lamb? It seems like it's getting harder. Is it worth it? Is it worth the trial? Is it worth the struggle? Is there hope? Will I have victory? We're going to answer that question today. I also want to encourage you that we need this chapter because we we need to see that God is faithful to finish and to complete the work that he began. Our God is faithful and true, and he will bring to pass, he will bring to fruition everything that he began. And so let's read chapter 6, verse 9, through chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. I looked. When he spoke, when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? 
After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bond servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So then, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no more, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor, the heat, or, nor any heat. For the lamb is in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of, of water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Then when the lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And so we begin with this fifth seal and the, the scenery shifts, basically. It shifts to a vision of those who have been oppressed and who have been killed for bearing witness to the Lord in both word and deed, to those who have been martyred for the sake of the gospel. And they cry out for justice. The reason they cry out for justice is not out of some sort of selfish vengeance, but because God is just. Our God is a just God. He is the God of justice. And they cry out, God, your very nature is just. So we cry out, Lord God, be just. They have been faithful to God and they have been slain for doing nothing wrong. All they have done is is share the love of God, the love of Christ with the dark and dying world. Men and women who have loved their lives, even to the point of death, saying that my love for mankind is so great that I will risk whatever it takes to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might have eternal life and not be in peril of eternal separation from God. I love them enough that I will share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have been murdered for loving God and for loving others, just as God has commanded us to do.
see many people today, right now, being murdered and beaten and tortured and imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. This is not an end time event. This is an event that has occurred from the time of Christ's ascension to the day that he comes again. The saints of God who are faithful to God will suffer for the sake of the gospel. And they cry out, God, how long? How many of you have prayed that prayer? How long, O Lord? This is another one of those when questions. Oftentimes we ask God when, and he usually doesn't tell us when, but he enables and equips us and strengthens us to persevere. We've talked about that a little last week. Remember when Christ had risen from the dead and he was getting ready to ascend back into heaven and one of the disciples asked, is it at this time that you're going to restore the fortunes of Israel? And what does Jesus say? It's not for you to know those things. I'll give you power to be my witnesses. I'm not going to tell you all the details, but here's what I will do. I will equip you to bear my name across the earth until I come again. That's what you need to know. How long, O Lord? What they are given is not an answer to how long, but they are given a white robe indicating that they are righteous and that they are told to rest a little while longer. Be patient and wait until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they have been, could be completed also. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. Judgment will come in God's time. God will vindicate His righteous people in God's own time. We ask how long God says, I'll make you righteous. And until then, you continue to persevere, you continue to wait and be patient. Things will happen in my time. And how long are they to wait? Until the last of their brethren is killed. Here we see this, this interesting tension because in... In Matthew, we are told to, uh, to go forth and take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. And here we are told that the end will come when the last person gives their life. Folks, we are to be going out and sharing the gospel. But in this sense, there will come a day. There will come a day when one, the last person who is to give their life for the cause of Christ gives their life. They offer their neck to the sword. And the sword comes down. And they breathe their last breath. And our God said it is enough. And he returns in glorious splendor to judge the living and the dead. That day will come. And God is saying, now, how long? You just keep persevering and you keep waiting. For those of us who are alive on this earth, we should love our lives even to the point of whatever it takes. And there will come a day when God will say it is enough and it is done. It is now time for justice to be done. And those who have called good evil, woe to them. And those who have called evil good, woe to them. And those who have loved Christ more than life itself, they will be vindicated. And so with the fifth seal opened, we continue on to the sixth seal. The sixth seal is Judgment Day. 
Wars and pestilence, famine, death, martyrdom, and then the end when God's wrath shakes heaven and earth. John in seal 6 now launches us into the future when Christ returns at the end of history. The sixth seal opens and John is launched to the end of history to see the very return of Jesus Christ. You might ask, how do, why do I think this is the return of Jesus Christ? Because the language here is exactly what is used throughout the return of Jesus Christ. It is the exact language used of when God shows up in judgment. Isaiah 34.4, again, when God appears to judge the wicked, this is what he says, and the host of heaven will wear away, the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, all their hosts will wither away, as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from a fig tree. Joel chapter 2.10, when God comes in judgment, he says this, before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. In Judges chapter, let me read you a few more, in Judges Chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, when God is come, speaking of God coming in judgment against the wicked, it goes like this. Lord, you went out from Sire and you marched upon the field of Edom. The earth quaked, the heavens dripped, the clouds dripped water, the mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord. This Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. And then we read further in Isaiah chapter 13, 13. Again, the day that the Lord shows up to judge the wicked. He says this, Therefore, I will make heavens tremble. The earth will be shaken from its place. And the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. We see earthquakes, scrolls being rolled, heavens being rolled up like a scroll, stars falling from the sky as depicting the day that God appears to judge the wicked on the earth. We see this, of course, throughout the book of Revelation. And, of course, we see it in Hebrews 26. The other thing that we should point out is that the same cosmic calamities occur in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29 through 31. This happens just before the return of Christ. All right. If you read Matthew 24, these events occur and then Christ returns. Here it is. But immediately after the tribulations of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. When Christ arrives, when Christ comes in glory, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heaven will be shaken, and then people will see the glory of Christ coming. This is exactly what you see here in in Revelation chapter 6. The language is exact. John has been launched now into the future to see the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the response of the earth dwellers. Hide us. Hide us from the presence, or literally hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The typical response of those who see the glory of the Lord 
in their sinfulness is to hide. Remember Adam and Eve. What was their first response after they sinned? It was to run and hide. They did not want to be, they did not want to face the presence of God Almighty. That was not an event they wanted to be part of. And so they hid themselves. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb and from the one who sits on the throne. You'll notice seven types of people are listed here. Seven kinds of people. In other words, seven being symbolic of totality. All to, the totality of humanity, of sinful humanity from all walks of life. You will see kings and paupers in this. Your money, your wealth, and your power will not save you on the day of God's wrath. Your lack of opportunity and your, challenge, and your life challenges will not save you from the wrath of God on the day of judgment. In a few minutes I'll tell you how you can be spared that. But all walks of life, the totality of humanity, living in rebellion to God, seek to have the mountains fall upon him on them so that they do not have to bear and look upon the face of God. This occurs today when you share the gospel with somebody and they mock you and spurn you and call you names and try to put away. This is the presence of God in their face and they do not want to face it. When you share the gospel and you are mocked, when you stand up for the causes of Christ and you are ridiculed and derided, this is simply because they want to hide from the truth, the face, and the very presence of God that you have presented to them. But there will come a day when Christ will appear and they will say they would rather have the mountains fall upon them than to stand in the presence of the one who will judge them. I need to ask you, how will you fare on the day of God's wrath? I know we're not supposed to talk about that in church. But here it is. How will you fare? I need to ask you, how will you fare on that day? And then look at the very last thing that they say. Who is able to stand? Who can stand in the presence of the the very face of God and the Lamb. Who can stand? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. I'm going to answer that question because I think John answers that question. The, the, the text, chapter 6, ends with who can stand in chapter 7 answers the question. So let's look at chapter 7. Who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing. First of all, this after this, as we've been seeing in the book of Revelation, after this is a change of vision. Um, the, the vision shifts. Now John is seeing something else. In other words, I see this one thing in the vision. Now after I saw that, now I'm seeing this. In other words, this is not a chronological sequence. This is just simply the way the vision is going. After I see one thing, now I see another thing. After I saw this, now I see that. And after John saw the sixth seal broken, now he sees something else. And chapter 7 is going to illustrate how God will protect his people from the calamities of chapter 6. Chapter 6 was a bleak chapter. Wars and pestilence and famine and death and all deception. Very bleak chapter. Can you be saved from that? Can you stand? The Christian needs to ask, can I stand? 
There are four winds, there are four angels, there are four corners as we have discussed. Um, four has to do with a symbolic idea. Four has to do with, um, uh, speaks of the things of the earth. And so this has the idea of exercising worldwide restraint while God seals his servants before the judgments fall. God is going to now seal his servants. I saw another angel rising from the, ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. This, of course, points us back to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 9, beginning with verse 4 through 6. We see this. The Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark. And so... You shall start for my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. Those who have the mark of God are spared, and those who do not have the mark are not spared. You will note that there are two marks in the book of Revelation. There is the mark of the Lamb, and there is the mark of the beast. We'll get into the mark of the beast later. But for now, there is this sealing of the people of God. What is the nature of this seal? Well, first of all, it protects against judgment. And second of all, we see the nature of this seal in Revelation chapter 14, 1. We see this, this group of people, this 144,000 again. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Those who are sealed have the name of God written on their foreheads. The name of God and the name of the Lamb is written on their foreheads. I don't know if that's actually literal. I'm sure if you've read the Left Behind series, they take it literally. Well, they have a little cross. Fun reading. Please don't use it as theological accuracy. In other words, these people belong to God. God is written on their foreheads. The name of God is imprinted upon their minds and they belong to God. Just like we saw in Ezekiel chapter 9. Those who have the mark of God on their foreheads will be spared the judgments of God. Well, then we get to this issue of 144,000. And of course, then the question becomes, who are these? And of course, we want to identify who the 144,000 are. There are probably five very popular um, understandings of who the 144,000 are. I'm sure there are more. I'm sure there's probably 100. Um, but there are five that um, are worth considering um, because of time. We will not consider... We'll only consider one of them, but I'll mention two. <laughs> we'll consider the view I take. On Wednesday, though, we can look at this even more in more detail. The first view 
that is very popular and I would say is the, the most common amongst evan- Western evangelical churches, especially American evangelical churches, maybe not so much worldwide except where Western Christianity has had great influence. But the, probably the most common or popular understanding of this is that these 144,000 are a believing remnant of ethnic Israel and that they are sealed during the Great Tribulation. Um, perhaps even they go out and they are witnesses and that they share the gospel during this final seven year period of time and um, so the 144,000 are a literal 12,000 from each tribe of Israel equal, and that these are a remnant from ethnic Israel remember not all well I can get into that that's a very common view I don't, I don't hold, I did for years and years and years hold to that view. I don't any longer. I think that we understand the 144,000 is figurative. And the reason I think that 144,000 is figurative is simply because numbers in the book of Revelation are figurative. In fact, I stated in our very first session on the book of Revelation that... My understanding of the book of Revelation is that we take things symbolically unless we are absolutely clear that it is to be taken literally. Most people don't hold that. Many people hold that it takes literally unless it's definite symbolic. But here's why we take things, I believe we should take things figuratively in the book of Revelation first. Number one, it's apocalyptic literature. All right? The very genre of apocalyptic literature is symbolic. That's just the nature of apocalyptic literature. Read it. Just pick up any other apocalyptic literature. It's all over the place. All right? It is, by definition, symbolic. Revelation falls into the genre of apocalyptic literature, and so following that genre, it only makes sense to take things symbolically. Second, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. John says that these things were communicated to me. And as we understand that term, we will see that term translated in the Old Testament as saying, communicated through signs. And John uses that word throughout his gospel, that word communicated, semion. Um, This is actually a cognate of that word to refer to signs. Signs aren't the real thing. Signs point to something else. And so John is saying these things were communicated to me by signs. Hence, we should take this symbolically. The other reason, I th- other reasons I think that we should take this 144,000 as symbolic, aside from the fact that this is apocalyptic literature, is the fact that this, this is a very unique... The listing of these tribes is very unique. To my knowledge, it's nowhere else in Scripture. It does not refer to the sons of Jacob... Because we have Manasseh, who's not a son of Jacob, but a grandson of Jacob. We don't have Ephraim, who is also a grandson, but he's not included with Manasseh. It doesn't include Dan, who is a son of Jacob. On the other hand, it can't refer to the tribes because we have Joseph listed and there is no tribe of Joseph. Go back to your maps in the back of your Bible and see the distribution of land and find the tribe of Joseph. It doesn't exist. Now, did John just forget that? 
A good Jewish boy like John, did he just kind of, oops, I forgot how the tribes are listed? I don't think so. So, because of the uniqueness of the tribes, I think it's pointing us to the fact that these are, there's, a, there's a, something symbolic going on here. Also, Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, talks about the 144,000. These are people who have been redeemed from all mankind. They are the first fruits of God. Again, And that's and that hundred and forty four thousand, by the way, um, includes only chaste males. So sorry, gals, you're out of luck if you want to take it literally. That's so sad. I didn't write it. And, and married men, sorry, you're out too. And unmarried men who have been involved in unrighteous relationships. Sorry, you're out too. Another reason I think that this refers to the totality of God's people purchased by the blood of the Lamb because of apocalyptic literature being symbolic because of the uniqueness of the tribes being Revelation 14 speaks of this group as the first fruits of the redeemed from mankind. Also in verse 3, these people are referred to as the bond servants of our God often referred to as you and I. Another reason is because you say, well, yeah, but it clearly says Israel. Well, let me read a few verses for you. Tell me what you think. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. How is one part of the commonwealth of the people of God? It is by faith. And here we see the people of God, Gentiles, being included as the people of Israel. And here we go, Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. But it is, not, it is not enough that the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but is, but is the word of promise. At this time I will come... I'm sorry, I think it was over the last verse. But that is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. How does one become part of this of this people of God? It is not by your birth. Your heritage, your bloodline has nothing to do with it. But those who come by faith, the faith of Abraham, are part of Israel. Not whether you've been circumcised or have the right dietary laws or even your bloodline means nothing. I shouldn't say that. That was a little too strong. I shouldn't say it doesn't mean nothing. But in the eyes of God, the people of God belong to those who come to God by faith like Abraham. Galatians chapter 3 verse 29. 
And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. How are you Abraham's descendant? By bloodline? No, by faith. Finally, Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship God in the spirit and the glory of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Your bloodline isn't going to get you anywhere. If you want to be part of the people of God, you need a whole new birth. You need a whole new dad. You need a whole new bloodline. If you want to be part of the people of God, you need a new bloodline, and that bloodline is Jesus Christ, the blood that he shed upon the cross, and you will be part of the people of God. And that is the only way, that is the only bloodline that counts. So I believe that this is a figurative number based on the fact that apocalyptic literature is by nature symbolic because this genealogy just doesn't fit anywhere in scripture because Revelation 14 talks about these people being the first fruits of God redeemed from mankind because the, the New Testament talks about those who are of the faith of Abraham are the people of God and because we are referred to as bond servants. So I believe that what we are talking about here is God is sealing the people the totality of God's people purchased by the blood of Christ. And then we will notice after these things I looked and behold a great multitude and someone might say, aha, now there's a great multitude. So, if the 144,000 are the totality of God's redeemed, then who is this great multitude? Because they look like the totality of God's redeemed. Exactly. After these things, a new scene. You should note that the location here is in heaven. I believe that this is the totality of God's people secure in the presence of God. Notice where they come from. They come from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. I include that. It includes Jews. I think both groups are a picture of the totality of God's people saved by Jesus Christ. And I think the legitimate question is, then why are they described two ways? I think that's a legitimate question. I think it's a good question. I think the best answer to that is, remember back in chapter 5, the angel John was weeping, remember? And the angel of God said to John, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. And I turned and I saw a lamb. Was it a lion or a lamb? Was the lamb and the lion the same? They were. What did he hear? The lion. What did he see? A lamb. The lion and the lamb are the same. Here, I turned and I heard of 144,000 and I saw a vast multitude. It's the same. So we shouldn't. John has used this description before to describe Jesus, who is one Jesus, but he's described as a lion and a lamb. Two completely differing metaphors, and yet they're the exact same person. So I think both groups picture the totality of God's people. You wish, we should note. We should note. something very important about this group of people, that they are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Again, this is not literal. 
They did not actually take a garment and dip it in the blood of the Lamb. This is to portray that they are purified. They are clean. Their sins are forgiven. Their, their sins have been atoned for by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Their sins have been removed. This is a totality of people who have had their sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. Well, here we have another little chat before us. And I'm going to offer to you probably again a slightly different perspective. The great tribulation. Is this the last seven years? of the history of the earth. I think there's going to come a period of time, by the way, I believe that towards the period before Christ returns, there will be a very intense time. But I would tend to understand this um, not as the final years, seven years, or three and a half years. I think that this spans the totality of time from the time of Christ's ascension um, to the time of his second coming. And the reason I think so is because Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Did I make a slide for that? Oh, there we go. I didn't make one for that, but here's a couple. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. In this world we have tribulation. Acts 14.22 Strengthen the souls of the disciples and encourage them to continue in the faith saying through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God and then John in this very book says Die John your brother and fellow partaker in what? The tribulation I think prior to the return of Christ there will be a very intense an intensification of the tribulation but I think that what's going on here is these are people who have been saved from the tribulation that began began from the time of Christ and continues on until the day that Christ returns. We have to ask ourselves, well, I don't have time for that. These are believers in Jesus Christ. I want you to understand what these believers are doing. Remember, all of this is answering the question, who can stand? Who can stand? The ones who can stand are the ones who are sealed by God, who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Those are the ones who can stand. And look what they're doing. They're celebrating. They're clothed in white. White has this idea of being overcomers. And they're waving palm branches. Palm branches were a sign of victory. It was also a symbolic of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booze, which was a celebration of deliverance from bondage. These people are celebrating deliverance from bondage. It's a celebration. It is a victory. We have been freed and delivered by the blood of the Lamb. That's how we overcome. Who can stand? We can stand. Why? Because we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I want you to note their posture and their position before we continue on. Because this is just amazing. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. What was the question? Who can stand? Those who have been... And what were they they afraid of? 
face of the Lamb and of God. And what are these overcomers, the ones who have been sealed, who have the name of God and the Son on their forehead, who have been washed in the Lamb? What are they doing? They are standing in the face, in the very presence of God, celebrating and singing Amen, glory and honor and power and praise and dominion and worthiness to the Lamb who has been slain. They are standing. Who can stand? Chapter 7 tells you who can stand. Are you one of those people? Will you stand on the day when... Will you be able to stand in the presence of the Lord? There are promises after promises after promises in the Bible that He will be able to make you stand. He will cause you to stand in His presence, holy and blameless, because you have His name written on your forehead, because you've been washed in the blood of your sins or atoned for. Who can stand? I'll tell you who can stand. Chapter 7. They are clothed in white, standing. And because they are standing in the very presence of the Lamb, all of heaven is prompt to praise. And all heaven falls down because of the work of God and the work of Christ. And then we see this divine protection that's very reminiscent of what happens in Revelation 22 when there is no more tears, there is no crying, there is no fear, there is no death, there is no tears, there is none of that. I will put my tabernacle, my presence literally over them and I will walk with them and I will give them water of life and tree, the tree of life and I will provide for them every moment of eternity. I want you to see how this whole thing plays out. Chapter 6, war and famine and plague and disease and economic turmoil. People dying for the cause of Christ. Christ coming in judgment. And we want, who can withstand that? God says, I'll mark you out and I'll make you my own. And yes, you may suffer in this life. You may be one of those martyrs under the throne. But here's what I have to tell you. I will place my tabernacle over you and there will be no crying, there will be no tears, there will be no, no fear, there will be no casting out. I will be your God, you will be my people and I will give you the water of life for eternity. That's what I'm going to do. Who can stand? Well, what about the eighth, the seventh seal? When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. I will be very upfront. I don't know exactly what the half hour is all about. I've not read one thing that makes sense. It's just a period, perhaps a period of time, shorter than an hour, which speaks of a short period of time. But it's a time when all of creation is silent. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Be silent. God has sealed his people. He has protected them and kept them through war and famine and pestilence. He has brought them into into his kingdom. He has purchased them by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And now all of creation stands in awe. The plan of God is complete. God's people are saved. Injustice is remedied. Who can speak?
And like heaven, our Lord, we stand in awe of all that you've done. The Lord is in his temple. And all the earth keeps silent before him. And Lord, the silence was for a half an hour, a short period of time. And then we see things back to the worship and praise of our Lord and God. So now that we've spent just two, a moment in silence, let us also stand and rejoice in the great things that God our Savior has done.